The special edition of the DNVR Nuggets podcast is brought to you by Bojo's, the only place where you can get a true Colorado mountain pie. Bojo's has six Colorado locations that have an offer of 30% off your takeout order. Of course, everybody right now wanting to know how to support local businesses, knowing, wanting to know what restaurants are doing takeout, Bojo's, and not only are they doing it, they're offering 30% off when you take out. So call them. They've got gluten-free options, cheeseless pizza, plant-based options. They have a tremendous salad bar, all kinds of great things to go. So if you're looking for your next takeout option, try Bojo's. What is up, everybody? Welcome into a very special edition of the DNVR Nuggets podcast. I, as always, am your host, Adam Modis from DNVR, and I'm joined by a very special guest today, one of the winningest coaches in NBA history, uh, a coach whose career as a player and coach weaves in and around some of the biggest names, teams, and moments in NBA history from Dean Smith and our beloved Doug Moe, George Gervin, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Ray Allen, Carmelo Anthony. Somebody who's played against uh, some of the biggest names you know about, coached against Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, many others, and somebody who's on my personal Mount Rushmore of Denver sports coaches, and also the star of the Truth and Basketball podcast, a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic podcast that basically allows him to tell stories about all of his great life experiences around the game. It is, of course, Denver Nuggets coaching legend, George Carl. George, how is that for an introduction? I don't know if I... Uh... Uh, being called a legend when you're still alive kind of bothers me a little bit, you know. Living legend? A living legend would be better. Okay. Living thank, legend. thank you. You're very kind with your kind words. Well, I'm I'm really excited. As we were talking about just now, we've actually never met in person. So I'm I, I of course I'm 36 years old. Uh, spent a majority of my coming of age years uh, becoming an adult watching your Denver Nuggets team. So I'm I'm you hold a place very dear and near to my heart, and I'm excited to kind of talk to you about a lot of these, uh, you know, the 2009 team, the 2020 Denver team. I'm curious to get your perspective on them and hopefully some other things. But first, I want to ask you, <laughs> we're recording this at a really unique point in time. And I think everybody is sort of, um, you know, everybody on the in the entire planet is sort of, are sort of in the same moment right now with this coronavirus. I just wanted to ask you right now, what has you been your experience and your mind frame, you know, over the last couple of weeks as this pandemic has sort of, sort of swept the globe? Adam, I want you to know your first question is kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. It's, um, you know, I'm 68 years old. I'm in, the, I'm in that category of a block that says over 60 has more danger. I've had cancer three times. I've had uh, pneumonia two times in the last year. Mm. That, that says I have more chance. And then, of course, I'm a male, and it says uh, I wake up. I wake up most mornings in my life in a positive mood. I've always been, my philosophy in life is positive energy, positive thoughts, above the line mentality, don't go below the line, the glass is half full, not half empty. Uh, that's kind of been my strength as a coach and as a player and as a person. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, this stuff is a little scary, how our country's handling it. Yeah. Scares, it scares me a little bit. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know what the phrase is. I'm not happy with people going to the hospital and not getting tested and don't have, are not getting attention. Yeah. You know, you know I, I mean, we've argued for 10 years now about Obamacare and about, you know, universal health care. I think this tells the whole American world 
We need universal health care. Mm. That's the one thing that I would state. Uh, but, you know, from a standpoint of where we're at, I'm very disciplined and committed to doing what, you know, our government is trying to tell us. I think that the government is trying to figure out how to help us. And uh, the one thing that I'm, 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 I've always been positive about is when Americans get challenged, they usually come out in a better place, a stronger place, yeah. and a more unified place. So I'm, 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 I know we got whatever, two months, five months, seven months, 18 months. Yeah. But whatever, whatever it takes, I think our, our country will figure out how to come together. And I think in the end, we'll be better for it. Was your perspective on the healthcare system influenced or changed at all by going through the battle with cancer that you have over the last decade? Uh, you know, I've had great care, so I cannot complain about the healthcare system. Um, the hospitals I've been in have been unbelievable. I don't know if it's because I have a recognizable face or a celebrity status. Uh, but I, I've always been, I've always kind of, been, I think you don't know me well enough to know that I'm fairly liberal and I, I, I'm a little bit on the Bernie Sanders side of liberal. Okay. I think there's a lot of social programming and, um, you know, business programming that I'm probably a little more conservative, but on taking care of our country, uh, I, I really believe we should be more aware of some basic needs that our government should pay for. In uh, the same sense, um, you know, I, I've always, I've lived, in, I've lived in Spain for two years. I lived out of the country a lot. And I do know that America is by far the best country in the world. And we're blessed to be here. And I think we just need to get back on track to starting to take care of our, our people a little bit better than we do. I think that's that's very well said, Coach. Um, t fill me in, because I'm actually curious just what you've been up to over the last several years. First of all, are you living in Colorado primarily? Ah, I live in Denver. Uh, I have a 15-year-old daughter that I share responsibility for every other week. I travel a lot. Um, I got four grandkids. I mentor uh, you know, four or five college coaches and four or five NBA coaches. A lot of NBA assistant coaches who were on my staff or are friends of yeah. mine, they come to Denver and we go talk hoop a lot. You know, I, I, I miss the game. I miss uh, being in the gym. I miss the basketball fraternization that happens amongst, uh, you know, and the NBA is taking some shots this year. I mean, Kobe Bryant killed yeah. me. Yeah. David Stern had an impact on me. And now we have a cancellation of a or a postponement of a season that we don't know where it's going to go or how it's going to work out or, or, or if it's going to work out. Do you think about the game of basketball every every day now, multiple times a day? Or is it one of those things where it weaves in and out of your life, I guess, uh, the rhythm of your life now? I would bet you every day of my life basketball's in it. Um, you know, my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, was a soccer player her whole life. She decided she wanted to play basketball this year, made varsity at Kent. And so I went to all her games, and, you know, That's she cool. was 
And 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 she went. She actually yelled at me this year, saying, uh, "Why didn't you make me play basketball?" <laughs> and yeah. uh, I said, "Well, you're a little hard to get along with when you're told to do things." <laughs> I understand that. I was I was forced actually to play basketball as well. I loved baseball. That was the only sport I wanted to play. And I, I'm same story. I'm very thankful that my parents forced me to continue playing basketball, especially when I shot up to be as tall as I did. Um, it really, really paid off. Um, what are you watching the NBA? Obviously right, not right now, but during the NBA season, are you watching it every night, every week? And, and maybe who are some of the teams and players you get most excited to tune in for? I'm watching every night. I, I'm, I'm not saying every night if I'm out or if I'm visiting somebody, I don't rush home like I used to. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a educated fan on the game of basketball. I think there are some interesting stories in the NBA. Um, trying to figure out the pulse of the NBA and um, where they're, what is real and what isn't real. Yeah. Um, I think that is something that I think the one, the podcast, even though when we named it Truth in Basketball, I've kind of liked it now because. I don't think the truth is being told by enough people that is helping the game of basketball and its soul and it's real. It's, it's a, it's a real game. It's a tough game. It's a difficult game. Uh, we want to put the icing on the cake before we, we cook the cake. And I think too much right now is, I mean, the game is in a good place. Um, but in the same sense, it's a game that's always evolving. Yeah. And, I mean, if you told me the game would be played like it's played now 10 years ago, I would have laughed at you. I mean, when we – when in 2010 is when we kind of went to the, the draw and kick, the yeah. free-flowing game. And in 2013 is when it performed its best. There's like six teams in the NBA playing – like we were playing, maybe five, not even that many. And now you have probably 29 teams yeah. playing. I mean, it, it has changed so fast. And I don't know if it's it's the, the ability of the Internet. I don't know what causes things moving so fast. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of books on it now that our world is going to move even faster than it's moving now. I agree. I think that's really interesting, really true. And it's something I think about a lot, not just that things change, but the rate of which they change. And when we look at the NBA, you know, over at DNVR, we're rewatching the entire 2009 playoff run and watching it. I'm struck by a number of things. One, obviously just how different it is from the rate of three point shots and where people stand on the court playing with multiple bigs, you know, sometimes two, three bigs even. Um, but I'm curious, do you think the game, in 2009 is more similar to the game in 2020 or to the game in 1999. So basically going previous 10 years or, or later 10 years. I would say it, it, that in 2009, our game still was possession oriented, play call oriented. And, you know, I, I think I always wanted to play fast, but yeah. I think in the playoffs, at that time, everything did slow down. It was like in the next couple of years that I thought or Steve Nash's teams or everybody tried to play fast in the playoffs 
and had some success. And then, of course, Golden State kind of knocked it out of the ballpark by winning championships by playing flow, fast paced basketball. Yeah. This is kind of an abstract question, but I feel like a lot of people now in 2020 approach basketball as if it's something that can be solved, you know, both on a spreadsheet, obviously the rise of analytics, but also just people, I, I, it seems like people think this is how basketball is supposed to be. And everybody's trying to do that. Do you think that basketball is a sport that can be, you know, quote unquote solved, or is it more about like an individual discovery of every team player coach and the, the combination of whatever it is you're given? Wow. That's an interesting question. <clears throat> well, all I know is one question I get asked a lot when I talk to coaches is how do we save the big guy? Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I don't have a good answer for that question because I really think most statistics, most analytics is saying if the big guy can't make threes, and, you know, I, I said five years ago that I still think a, a low-maintenance big guy that protects the rim, covers pick and rolls, and does a good job in transition, if he gets 10 points a game and 10 rebounds, you can still play him. Yeah. But that was five years ago. That guy I, is losing credibility or playability in our game today. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you just want more more exuberance. You want more skills. You want more talent. Um, but I, I still don't think the game doesn't have some change to it. Right. Um, I think the game is going to evolve. Three or four years ago, when Golden State came on the scene, the thing I said about them was they were ahead of the curve defensively. Mm. They did not put a bad defender on the court. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as we're, you know, with Mello and, and some of the teams here, we had bad defenders on the court all the time. Um, but now I think an NBA, a great NBA player has got to have balance. He's got to be good offensively yeah. and he's got to be good defensively. He can't have a weakness of being a bad defender or a bad offensive player. And I think the other thing that's coming into the game that, I'm not saying it was my idea because I think I stole it from other people was playing a lot of point guards, playing yeah. a lot of, a lot of good decision makers. And then if you can have one big guy that can make good decisions and have two or three point guards, you don't have to have a coach out there a lot. You can let the game happen, let the game yeah. flow and, and you can create the game at the defensive end of the court and let the offense just happen. And the reason I say that is because I learned that the game was more fun when I took, when I put my control and my discipline and my demand to defense, I demand to, to detail at the defensive end of the court and let the offense flow and then kind of coach the game instead of with execution and play calling and demand that, I want the ball here and then here, you know, and letting the creative mentality of your players evolve. And, you know, I remember back in 2012 and 2013 where coaches would say, all they do is play playground basketball. Well, the whole NBA now plays playground basketball. Right. Sure. 
you got to know how to read and react and, and all of the millions of different variables that could happen on any possession. And it's harder to coach. It's not everybody thinks playing, letting it happen. Yeah. It's easier to coach. Yeah. You don't have as much control. <laughs> you have to go with the flow. And sometimes that flow is negative. Yeah. And how you change it, it used to be by calling plays or taking a guy out and putting another guy in. Right now, you kind of change it by maybe putting another guy in. But usually that guy is more creative, more confident than the guy that you took out. Take a quick break here to tell you about Breckenridge Brewery, the official beer of DNVR. Remember, supporting our partners is supporting us during this crazy time. And right now, you can get takeout dining from their farmhouse kitchen. They have a great food menu there. Some of the best bar food in all of Denver. Great wings. I highly recommend the wings. They've got uh, a charcuterie board, burgers, chicken, whatever it is you're looking for. They've got it all, and you can take out from them. Use the promo code DNVR, and you save $5 off of your meal. You can also, of course, get uh, all of their selection of, of delicious beers from them including their 15 can uh, can sampler. Right now, you can order that through the Drizzly app. The Drizzly app is like uh, Grubhub, but for alcohol, they'll deliver it right to your door. All they got to do is see your ID, put it up against the glass. They'll leave it for you right there on your porch. You can order the 15 can sampler. Try all of their different beers out. Strawberry Sky, Hot Peak IPA, Colorado Core, Avalanche Amber, everything in there. So try that out right now. And don't forget to use that promo code DNVR to save $5 on your meal. And also want to tell you about Manscaped. Really, really dig this product, guys. Manscaped right now, um, they sent us a, a box with a bunch of cool things in there. The the featured item in the box was the Lawnmower 3.0. Look, let's face it. You're living in the year 2020. You probably uh, know that manscaping is now a part of man uh, of male grooming. You're going to want to try the Lawnmower 3.0. You're not going to get any cuts, any nicks, any any injuries. We're talking about a very sensitive area. You don't want to have something in there you don't trust. Try the Lawnmower 3.0. And then a part of the package that they offer, they've also got these incredible, you know, lotions and just other things, uh, a travel bag. Uh, you get a, a T-shirt. There's all kinds of really cool things inside that package. So whether it's for you, maybe it's for your, your son or, or somebody, uh, your husband, whoever it is. This is a really, really great gift. Maybe they don't want to buy it on their own. You get it for them. They're going to appreciate it. Use the promo code DNBR20 for 20% off. Not only do you save 20% and get free shipping when you visit manscaped.com and use that promo code DNBR20, but it also lets them know, DNBR listeners, they support the sponsors of their show. So check them out today, manscaped.com. You're talking about this may be a good chance to segue into this 2019 because one of the things that really struck me as I'm rewatching this is the broadcast would put um, something below. It'd say something like Chris Anderson, shot blocker, uh, you know, Dante Jones, defender. And everybody had sort of a one line description of what they did. And to your point, as you were talking about Golden State, I think one of the big differences about today's NBA is <coughs> players are maybe no more specialist, you know, great at one thing, weak at the others. They kind of have to be good at everything and and maybe less great at specific things. But that was when you look at that 2019, there was Carmelo Anthony, who had, in a lot of ways was scorer. He had a title as well. He had Chauncey that ran the show. But you had a lot of guys that they had one description. You could define them in one rebounder, shot blocker, defender, shooter, whatever Whatever it was, they almost had one thing that defined what they did. Well, I, I I agree with you that the specialist is kind of 
I think the specialist may, will make an NBA roster, but I don't know if a specialist can play 30 minutes a game. Yeah. I think there will be moments that you can use a specialist, like Dante Jones. I mean, looking back on 2009, you know, we played Dante the first eight minutes of the game, the first eight minutes of the second half, and we were just kind of want a defender out there, a tough-minded guy, a little bit of an ass that's going to create some anger. And and Dante loved the role. He played it really well and, and, you know, played really well actually in the playoffs, more so than I thought he would. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he was one of the guys that, you know, one of the tough guys on the team and however you want to define that, but he would get under people's skin on purpose. That was what he was trying to do. How important is toughness in your opinion to creating a great basketball team? Ooh, I think in the, once you get into the playoffs, now there's, there's two toughnesses. There's mental toughness and there's physical toughness. Yeah. Um, I think mental toughness actually is more important than physical toughness. I think when players talk about toughness, they're, th- they're talking more about physical toughness. Sure. Um, and the example I make is Chauncey. Chauncey came here. Is he a tough guy? You know, he played for the bad boys in Detroit. But Chauncey's not going to create a confrontation. Right. But, but there are very few players that I coached that weren't as mentally tough as Chauncey was. His awareness, his ability to think the game before it happened, his ability to react to what is happening in the game in a positive manner. I mean, there's a lot of mental chaos in an NBA game, yeah. both, both good and bad. And how players react, especially when you have Melo and J.R. Smith and Kenyon Martin Marcus Camby, Nene, all of those guys had a trigger point that they could go the wrong way. Right. Yeah. And and everybody said, well, you know, that's the job of the coach, and that there is there's no question that managing that is important. But it's so much easier to manage that when you got a mentally tough leader running your ball club. And that's, I mean, when we made the AI trade for Chauncey. We knew in two weeks that we were going to be good. Really? Right away. I mean, everybody, not only the coaches, the locker room, everybody, the equipment manager, the strength strength (laughs) coach, everybody. Chauncey walked in that room, and his presence, you know, it was just a – it was unifying, it was magnifying, and it was real. It's funny you say that because it sounds like – it was conversations you had just with talking to people. People noticed, oh, this is different. And and I, I think to this year's Nuggets team, one of the things from being in the locker room and around the guys, I thought it that that spirit, that feel was noticeable in the other way. I, I thought the team was really growing each year and they had this belief of, oh, we can do anything. And this year it almost felt like everybody would would talk about something's missing, something something's not right with it. And maybe they were working towards getting it right. I mean the a process. It's always a process in NBA season, but it's funny you mentioned that because it's maybe not a specific thing. It's just a general feel that people have of, oh, this is right. We we got the thing we were missing, and it sounds like that's what Chauncey brought. Now, were there drawbacks to, you know, you didn't have Chauncey for training camp, and that's your best opportunity to 
get everybody on the same page. How much of a drawback was it not having him for those several weeks where the team was together practicing? Uh, we were a veteran team. Okay. I mean, we were, we were, it would have been different if we were making a lot of personnel changes, but we were basically bringing the same guys back. Maybe Dante was new. Uh, I don't know when Birdman, I think Birdman might've been with us the year before, but there weren't a lot of big changes on our roster. And, you know, just taking AI out and taking the tug of war between Mello and AI offensively out of our locker room, I think lifted people up. And then you put plug in Chauncey, who within a week knows your playbook, knows your assignments, (laughs) and he's this pro that just helps me coach the team. Yeah. As we're, and I'm not saying AI wasn't a pro. AI, in a, in many ways, was unbelievable, but AI was probably anti-professional from the standpoint of some of his habits and some of his decisions on the court. Chauncey's the exact opposite. He is totally and completely committed to being a pro and doing it the right way. And to have that as a coach in your locker room. People don't understand how wonderful it is. Yeah. Let's go. Let's fast forward to the playoffs here. The weight of losing out in the first round of the playoffs, I have to imagine, was, was you know was pretty thick. Were you? Do you think back to game one of that New Orleans series? Were you nervous going into it? Was that weight weighing on you? Or did you kind of know, we're good. We're, we don't need to, you know, not that you don't need to worry about it, but you were confident going in. <clears throat> I really think I'm, – I'm just going to make, tell okay. you how I feel about losing in the first round mentality. We lose in the first round to three teams right. that went to the NBA Finals. Two teams won the championship. And every one of those series were somewhat competitive except the Clippers series and the Lakers series. The two series against San Antonio were very competitive, even though they were 4-1. They were competitive. A lot of fourth quarter games. Um, I, I really, I didn't think I felt much pressure about losing to a team that's going to go to the NBA Finals or win the championship. Right, yeah. Uh, because sometimes you get a good round in the first round. Sometimes you get a, sometimes you get a, good, a team that favors you. But the NBA, the dynamics of NBA playoff basketball yeah. Is whatever flaws you have, they're going to come out. Whatever flaws you have, and if it's a balance of strength and weaknesses, and you're playing a championship caliber basketball team, your flaws are going to come out. And so I thought it was the process that was telling us what we had to do. You know, the changes that we had to make. And you know, we were always a good, you know, good regular season team, but we knew what our flaws were. And, you know, San Antonio brings them up. You know, we scared San Antonio a little bit. The Clippers, right, the year yeah. we lost to the Clippers, yeah. that was the best team in their history up until that time. So, you know, hey, you know, well, I mean, right. I mean, I just never felt that we were upset. The only team I thought that upset right, us. Right, right. 
And of course, there's was, a million uh, variables on that one. Not year to, I got you know, sick. We can talk about that one here in a little bit. But I want to, you know, what the 2009 team, I mean, was inches away from going to the finals. I believe Denver was better than Orlando that year. So I think inches away from winning a, a championship. But what do you think, if there was anything, what do you think was missing from the 2009 team? <sighs> you know, you know, I've talked a little bit about it on my podcast about Mello and trying to get Mello commit to being a total player. Yeah. I think Chauncey helped us get him in that direction. But I never think we ever got him in that room where he was going to be in that room all the time. Mm. So I put a little blame on my ability to to bring the best out of Mello on the table. Um, you know, I, I, I think one, another thing was a little bit, and it's going to be criticizing me a little bit, is did I get the most out of JR? Mm. You know, did I, did I get this talented kid, instead of playing him as a bench player for 20 minutes, should I have been trying to get him to be a starter for 30 minutes. Right. Um, and my stubbornness on his being a good and bad player, making great plays and then making stupid plays, maybe I overreacted to. Uh, and the other thing I would probably say is, did we shoot the ball well enough? But back then, the, sh- the three-point right. shot wasn't as dynamic as it is now. But I still think when offenses are crowded – they're not effective. And I think in the games that we did not have efficient offense, it was probably because we didn't space the court well enough. It's interesting you mentioned spacing because one of the things your teams, and especially the Nuggets teams, I thought always did really well was space out of the dunker. Of course, you had sort of invented the idea of playing players out of bounds in the dunker. Eventually, the NBA said, we can't do that anymore. But, you know, how, how which I thought, I, I just love that move. But what what goes into telling players this is a really specific question but what goes into telling players how to respond in the dunker spot because i feel like watching today's nba there's a huge gap between players that kind of get how important that role is cuz sometimes it's just a get out of the way role but there's players that get it and players that don't and i to me it makes such a huge difference well i think that's where big guys are got to become less stubborn yeah. And and understand that the dunker is a very efficient offensive place. And then if you work at it, you'll get you'll score points. Uh, the low block center, I don't think that guy's coming back. Yeah. Now, now now that guy could come back if he's really good. If he's you know, if his efficiency is really good. But a little bit of the Jokic problem in my mind is to get the ball to a big guy, it takes more time. It slows the game down. The rhythm of, of the, how Denver plays in the last two years, I've been a little, I've, I've been worried because they're playing too slow. Yeah. Uh, efficiency in offense comes with pace. The more you play fast, the more efficient you become. Right. And there are so many teams playing fast efficiently. And Denver, you know, it seems like it has momentum spurts of efficient play rather than a flow of efficiency. Yeah. And, so, and, and a lot of times this year, I thought Denver kind of sleepwalks for 20, 30 minutes. 
And then they wake up and they try to yeah. try to overcome. And they've done it very well. They're but a very good offense given how little they run. But they, you're, to your point, they could be so much better with, with pace injected into them. That is my belief. I think yeah. the game, uh, my feeling is the more pace, and there's a part of pit when you play pace and you turn it over and you take bad shots. Yeah. But more and more teams are figuring out that you can play fast without mistakes. And you can have good shot selection without mistakes. And uh, I think those are the teams that are going to have a little more a little more advantage than how Denver plays right now. What do you think prevents Denver from playing with more pace? What are some or maybe some of the things that could be slowing them down? Well, we may as well go into it. And, you know, I, I think sure. everybody's read my words that I wish they would go after a point guard. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, I think Chris Paul was the guy they should have. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they could have gotten them, but my NBA guy said Chris Paul could have been had. Um, and I think, you know, again, Chris Paul and, and Murray work. Yeah. They work really good in my mind. Two great shooters. Chris Paul is a better shooter than Murray. Yeah. And two guys who make good decisions for you. And then you got Jokic who makes good decisions for you. And I think the lack of that Jokic is now your best passer on your team. I'm not saying that hurts because he's fantastic, but I think it'd be better if you had a point guard that was close to Jokic and they would share the responsibility. Yeah. As we're now, I think at times, uh, Jokic likes responsibility, but he doesn't like a lot of, he doesn't like total responsibility. Right. As we're Chris Paul, you know, if a game is going on and he needs to take over, Chris Paul's going to take over. As where I think Jamal and you know their 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 playmaking ability in the backcourt is a little too much, in my opinion. Again, I'm a fan. Sure. In my opinion, it's tilted to scoring a little bit too much. I want guys that want to play basketball. I don't want guys searching down shots and stats. I want mm. the game. I want the game to be a we game and not a me game. Do you see that from Jokic as well, or is this a primarily Murray observation in your opinion? I love Jokic. I mean, I I love how he plays. I I wish he would maybe try to play faster. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes in the in in, in the NBA basketball world, big guys know if they're important, they don't have to run because they will wait for him. <laughs> and yeah. some. Sometimes I think Jokic knows that, that they'll wait for me. I don't have to run. And I, I just like the game to be played the best way, the easiest way, the simplest way. And, and I like it to be played with a we mentality, not a me mentality. I've always thought that he's obviously slow physically, but I always thought he was the fastest mentally. And so the more you speed up the game, the more the decision making gets sped up. And that's his, to his advantage. He loves to play. He loves to pass it. Yeah. How many big guys? I mean, I don't know. I guess he played point guard when he was in high school or something. Yeah. But he wants to make a basketball play for somebody else more than he wants to make a basketball play for himself. 
going to take another break here, guys, to tell you about Strava Craft Coffee, one of our OG sponsors, and for good reason. The Strava Craft is the rich CBD-infused coffee that you can purchase in K-Cups for your Keurig. You can buy whole bean, whole bean or ground uh, coffee. You can purchase online right now for 20% off using DNVR20. And I'm telling you, you're going to want to try this uh, Strava Craft. If you haven't yet, you're sitting at home, maybe you're getting a little bit bored, you want to try something new, give Strava Craft Coffee a try. The CBD really does uh, have a, a nice effect. You have achy joints, arthritis, IBS, it's migraines, anxiety, a lot of different uses. CBD is all the rage right now, and you can get it in coffee form. It tastes it's delicious coffee, first and foremost, but you get that extra little boost of CBD in there every single morning. Uh, a lot of people take that as a supplement, whether it's a pill or whatever. This way you can get your CBD through your coffee. Really, really cool thing that they have going on. And by the way, it's delicious. Local company and one of our OG sponsors. So you're going to want to check them out. Strava Craft Coffee. It sounds like you would have loved to have coached Jokic. I mean, what? How, how would you have coached him? And maybe what are some of the things in him that he doesn't have right now that maybe you would have tried to, to steer him towards? Uh, you know, I think one thing that comes to mind when you ask me that question is I'd like to try to get him more easy baskets. Mm. more, and, see, and that's where I think a point guard would right. help. Yeah. Instead of him having to make a lot of shots or his three-pointers got to go in, Right. I'd like to see his, 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 his shot distribution be more layups, free throws, and then whatever else. You know, if you even give me five layups and five free throws, you don't have to really worry about scoring 20 points. Yeah. You know, and I think making the game easier for him. Um, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, I think everybody's worried about his playing time. I think he should play as much as – I would play him more minutes. I, I don't know. 36-37. I would, I would put him in the top 20 in the league. Right, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. He's never going to look like he's going to be this fit athlete. Right. And and I, the other thing I would try to do is maybe figure out, you know, giving him a rest when he's on the court with a better team, when you know, where – he could rest a little bit. He could relax oh, a little bit. Oh, I see. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of being always feeling the the number one player. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Michael Jordan was a genius at the end of his career of not having to play that hard. Yeah. He let everybody else do it except when he had to do it. Right. I mean, people don't understand. Michael Jordan was a great defender, but he didn't play a lot of defense until the fourth quarter. Right. You know, he, he, he had the last, he had the third Pippen had the best guy. Ron Harper had the next best guy. Right. And, and he usually had a guy he could relax on. Yeah. That's a luxury. It's a real luxury. Yeah. Do you, we've kind of danced around this question, but Denver's all in on, on, on Jokic and you've, we've talked about the big man and what role do they have and, do you think Jokic has the skill set now that you can build around him or do you think it's there's these areas that you can't win a championship with this style unless this or this happens, or you put this or this type of player around him. Well, I think the answer is going to come this year when, um, because I think the key to the NBA championship is Anthony Davis. Yeah. You know, I, I, LeBron's going to be LeBron, but Anthony Davis is going to answer that question a little bit for me. Uh, but I definitely think Jokic 
is worth messing around with for many more years. Trying to figure out, you know, if he's Batman, who's going to be his Robin? Right. Or is 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 Jamal is Robin? And can, and can we get another piece that magnifies Jokic's ability to be a, the best player on the court? Right. Yeah. All how all how it comes together. Um, this is an interesting one. Another one that we've kind of danced alongside, but you know the players, the creativity that comes from players, and I think one of the biggest gaps in the NBA. We talk about big gaps. They're the gap between the smartest and the dumbest players on any given roster, I think, not dumbest, but maybe least quick to read the court or whatever, is really, really wide. And one of the things I think I observe from coaches when they call a lot of plays, it seems to me that they don't trust all or some of the guys on, on the court. What is the balance between just trusting your guys and instilling that trust and maybe you take some losses along the way, but it's on the court, you have to do it versus orchestrating from the sideline and saying, Hey, this is how we have to play on this possession. I think it's a, the question is um, for me, it's as a coach, I want plays to help guys get confident. Mm. I don't want to run plays because I think I'm smarter than the other coach or smarter that my plays are going to be better than letting them play. I'm 100% in that flow basketball that we went to in, in 2010, 2011 is the way the game's going to go. But there is always segments of the game. There's always moments in the game that you can, you know, a guy that's just gotten two offensive rebounds and two charges deserves a touch. After a timeout, can you, can you run something cute for a guy that might be struggling? There, there are things that plays are important for. And there's always going to be a little bit of a balance. The window of what I call matchup basketball or one-on-one basketball or isolation basketball, that those moments are not totally gone. I mean, I mean, I don't think you can have a large portion of them. Right. But there's there's always going to be, I don't know, 10 or 15 or 20 times a game that one-on-one basketball can be effective. Yeah. Um, the Nuggets this year, one of the storylines with them is they've gone all in on continuity for the last four years, trying to keep the roster exactly it is. What? But there's a flip side to that. Maybe things get stale. Guys eventually want a bigger role. Young guys in particular grow up through it. What is, what is the balance in your experience coaching continuity versus the value of bringing in new blood and new life every year? Uh, a lot of coaches, Pete Noel. I remember Pete Noel telling me this. I know uh, Bill Fitch told me this, that continuity works in management and coaching, but you always got to kind of shake your team up mm. unless you want a championship. You always got to be open to evolve or change something. Uh, you know, I know and, and at the end of my career, what we did the year before, we threw all those playbooks away and we rewrote everything. Every year? You know, every year. You start, wow. I mean, that didn't mean you didn't took, take some things from last year. Sure. But it, it was discussed. Wow. And, and you painted the picture differently. And I think that, all, that always has got to be a part of a team that's trying to get better. 
trying to move up the ladder of, you know, winning in the first rounds and winning in the NBA finals. I think creativity and versatility and newness, thinking outside the box, bringing excitement to the game, bringing fun to your practices, all that stuff is a part of building, you know, your system every year. And, uh, you know, I think they got some great pieces, but I'm probably a little bit with you when you use the word stale. I think mm. this year they've played a little stale. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really I didn't I didn't know some people asked me that over the summer if that's what I expected and I said I don't know maybe another year but I, I do think of watching this team this year and being around them I do wonder if that that expiration date kind of came up quick. Um, another thing you talked about fun and practices and in the locker room. Richard Jefferson was on this team a couple years ago, and when it was after his season with the Nuggets, I asked him about it, and the number one thing he said was this was the most boring team he's ever been on in his entire life at any level. And I kind of laugh because there's, you know, Gary Harris and Paul Mills. I said, yo, these guys that are really, really quiet. And I wonder, the 2009 Nuggets had a lot of loud personalities, a lot of them. And I think a lot of your great teams had a Rodman on them or an Artest or just had some type of characters. How important is it to have characters on the locker room for a grind of an 82 game season? And then what is the balance between, you know, having some choir boys that, you know, are going to always come in and be quiet and put their head down versus having some guys that are going to liven things up? Uh, I think every team has a different personality. Um, I kind of, I'm more into what you're feeling is I think, you know, for a better phrase, you need enjoyment. Yeah. You know, the game of basketball has lost its joy. Winning doesn't bring as much joy in 2020 than it did in 1998. I agree with this. Uh, there's not enough celebration of doing it the right way. I think fans have gotten a little cocky in thinking that winning is easy. I don't care how good you are, winning is never easy in the NBA. And so. How do you celebrate success? And because, you know, coaching is a, it's, 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 it's correcting, it's correction. So there's negativity to your, your mannerisms. And how you figure that out is a, a big part of taking a team that might be a, a 45 win team, but because you enjoy the game, you'll win 50. Right. And the same thing is if you, you're a 50 win team, you win 54. And you also have the ability to handle the negative. You know, if you have joy and enjoyment and, and unity, you can overcome a two-game losing streak or a three-game losing streak or four out of five, knowing that just as long as we're still in a, a mode of getting better, a, a mode of improving that we lost to good teams, you know, and you're not getting bad habits, you celebrate the moment, the process a little bit, even though yeah. I hate that word. <laughs> Not a fan of the process. The I think Michael Malone, this is one of the biggest things I observe him grapple with is, you know, he's like many coaches, a perfectionist. He's incredibly intense. He can get incredibly hot over mistakes. Um, but I also see him sort of consciously try to scale back when the team goes on a losing streak, not to to get too involved and maybe too down on it with the team. And it seems to me like that's one of the biggest balances in coaching is if you're too soft, you're going to allow your team to get away with bad habits and build bad habits. If you're too hard, 
they might start to tune you out and they might start to get too down and that joy gets sucked out of the building. I mean, is that one of the, the, the balances for a coach that is sort of always on your mind? Well, you know, I think, you know, when I got into coaching, you know, you kind of coach two or three sectors, but in today's game, you got to coach almost every individual and mm. you, and I mean, everybody has a different ego, a different psyche. Some guys like to be talked to. Other guys don't want to be talked to. I mean, I mean, Ty Lawson loved to talk. Andre Miller didn't want to talk. Uh, I, I mean, you got you to gotta be a little bit of an amateur psychologist. Yeah. And, and now, I think more than ever, your assistant coaches got to help you. Because you yeah. cannot – you cannot – motivate or inspire or manage 10 guys you don't have enough time you know so you take uh, you know the head coach has got to take the number one problem the number two problem and the number three headache but the other assistant coach has got to got to patch up along the way too yeah and i think that's one thing more than ever my last couple of years we came up with a system that you know, not only did every player, I coached every player, but there were two other coaches responsible for that player. So when I didn't see Ty Lawson getting up his shots, I went to the guys that were mm. my assistant coaches, and I yelled at them. I didn't yell at Ty. Right. I yelled at them. And so yeah. because a part of the process of, of an NBA season is do your players get better? Do they move from – being good at this and and his weaknesses, whatever whatever scouting report you've given to a young player's development, I mean it's a part of the process that you got to get better, you got to get smarter, and you got to come together as a team and and trust each other more. Talk to Wilson Chandler. You might appreciate this story, but I talked to him on this show a few years back and asked him, what was your relationship with like with George Carl? He said, oh, it was great. Love playing for him. I said, well, what did you guys talk about? He said, oh, we never talked. And so to your point, I think Wilson was a guy that didn't want to talk. So maybe giving him space was the way to handle that specific player. Ask him how many times I wanted to try to talk to him. <laughs> he I, just didn't, I mean, I he mean, didn't want Wilson is a quiet guy. He yep. just doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to answer a lot of questions. He wants. He wants the game plan. If it. If yeah. it. If it's kosher, he'll do it 100 percent the way you want it. Yeah, I. I really. He's a really interesting guy uh, to me. Um. Talk. Wrap, we'll wrap up here by talking about some big NBA stuff, and then kind of, you know, sort of your relationship to the city of Denver. But first, with the NBA, um, one of the things that I think defines this last decade of the NBA has been player agency. And all of the different things that spiral off of that. Just what has been your impression of how player agency has evolved over this last decade and its impact on the NBA? Oh, what a question. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think I've said this enough in public that the two guys in the NBA, the two jobs in the NBA that I don't think get honestly evaluated our agents and their power mm. and general managers and their mistakes. Mm. It's very easy for us to, to blame it on the coach 
or blame it on a relationship or blame it on something. It's easy for a general manager to maneuver around him. And I really don't understand why there has not been more stories written about how bad contracts have destroyed rosters. Mm. Yeah. And coaches have nothing to do with bad contracts. Right. I mean, there's not a coach in the NBA today that knows what's going on with a negotiation. Um, but in the same sense, not only does a coach got to react to a contract, but players react to contracts. So that influence of, of you know, how you make changes, a positive change instead of just a coin toss change where you're saying, I think it might work. And guess what? If it doesn't work, whose fault is it going to be? It's right. the coach's fault. Right. Always that, the first to go. That doesn't get a lot, a lot of attention out there. The truth of why teams destruct, have self-destruction, you can blame the coach because he is, you know, at the end, it is his job to figure it out. But if you throw chaos after chaos, con bad contract, bad decision after bad decision, that doesn't get interpreted very often. And then the other thing is the power of the agent. Yeah. I just, I, I mean, I just can't believe how much money and, and how they, you know, once the season ends, it seems they take over control of the NBA, in my mind. You know, from June 15th to September 15th, it's about money and contracts. And the guys that make most money are Asians. How do you... How do you stop that? Because it seems like it's really, I agree, I happen to agree with you, but I, I don't know how you stop that without completely changing the way free agency works and contracts work. I don't know how you stop it. Um, basically, as a coach, I feel organizations, owners, general managers, player personnel, they all cater to agents. Yeah. You know, I bet you... In my time in Denver, I saw management out with agents 250 times. And I never saw them once out with one of my assistant coaches. Hmm. And, you know, there's a paranoia that comes with it. Yeah, yeah. But maybe in the job of, you know, like I think Masai is one of the best gatherers of information in the NBA. I think he knows how to get information from players, right. agents, league office. He has all the connections of, of gathering information. But in the same sense, you know, he doesn't he doesn't show appreciation for the people that he has that are doing the hard work for the organization. Hmm. Hmm. You, I, I'm going to ask you about Jamal Murray's contract because you said something interesting there about how contracts can change the way teammates look at each other. Do you think, given just what you just even looking from the outside, how do you think Jamal Murray signing that contract affected the team's chemistry and, and just the way this season was going to go? Uh, I, I have no idea. You know, that's a locker room talk that I, I mean, I would speculate on that is I think irresponsible on my part. 
All I know is it happens. Contracts can have an impact in your locker room. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that, you know, Jamal, I think, has played a pretty good year. Not a great year, but a good year, a decent year. And I thought he could save the year by having a good playoff. Um, uh, but the whole thing comes down to is, you know, this team this year has sporadic problems of connecting with each other. Mm. Now that, you know, you, you can blame that on injuries. You can blame that on being stale. But the truth of the matter is in the playoffs, you got to be together. You got to be connected. And I thought last year they had the, the easiest road I've ever seen to the NBA finals. I mean, it was a gift that they got two teams that they're, they're on paper are probably better than, and then they could have gotten golden state in disarray. Yeah. That is not going to happen in the next 20 years. <laughs> right. I want it's you true. to know it's, it's not true. going to happen ever again. Maybe one they round, may but not three. I mean, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And okay, yeah, they had a good run. You know, I was disappointed when they lost to Portland, but they played. You know, it wasn't that they lost to Portland. Portland played well. Yeah. But I mean, it's just um, the playoffs are hard, mm -hmm. and the Western Conference over the last fifteen, twenty years has been unbelievably hard. Um, we talked a little bit about the way the league is covered now. It's different. Even you talk about changes, 20, 2009 to 2020, I feel like the league has completely changed how it's covered. Social media now is everywhere and every day. Just what, how, how, what are some of the things you would change about how the, uh, league is covered? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to speed up along here cause that's my second to last question. I got one more for you after that. I mean, the, the coverage of the NBA is blown up. Yeah. The one thing about NBA coverage that bothers me is there's a lot more information, a lot more statistics, a lot more opinion, a lot more whatever. It's blown up. And I'm not sure we're a smarter team or smarter coaches. Or, I think the – we we got to learn to take all this information and learn how to make us smarter rather just maybe sassier. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't think the game of basketball growing in, um, in expertise and special coaching. I see the game of basketball growing in popularity, money, uh, payments, uh, uh, but I mean, with all this knowledge that we have and stats and analytics, you know, I think there should be more cute basketball out there. More, say that again, more what basketball? More, I call it cute basketball, smart basketball, evolving okay, yeah. basketball, sure. developing basketball. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, I mean, I remember in 20, 2009, is kind of when I went to Vance Wahlberg and tried to, like, hey, we're going to change up. Maybe earlier than that. We still had AI in camp. So um, I don't know if it's 2008 or 20, 2008, maybe 2007. Uh, and we knew that 
gap basketball and, and draw and kick basketball probably wasn't going to work with AI and mellow, but we used it with our second team and, and we liked it. And so it, as it developed, you know, it, it was part of, you know, what we wanted to go to. And I've lost my train of thought all of a sudden. I don't know <laughs> no, but I think there is a hunger out there for people to learn the game of basketball. I think this has been one of the corners I've tried to make for myself in this, in this world is, you know, breaking down different plays and breaking down some of the the concepts behind why is this player here? Why are they doing this? And there's a huge appetite for that. I think the, we, we focused a lot of energy in my opinion on the free agency and the off the court and how cool this guy is and all the different things they're doing. But I think people really want to know how the game is played. What is the coach what is a coach thinking when they did this? What is a player seeing when they made this decision? And to me, that's th- those are the types of things I really think we did a great job of, maybe even in the 90s. And I would love to see a, a, a return to that more of just an education of the game. And that's one of the reasons I think the podcast is so fascinating is because in addition to telling stories and behind the scenes, you obviously have a great basketball mind and there's a lot of basketball thought you know, in, in your guys' show. Let, let me finish, though, with this one last question, which is I was really upset when you went to Sacramento and made your first trip back to Denver and there was no video, there was no tribute. Um, I personally was sort of hurt by that as a Nuggets fan, just that there wasn't a moment to honor. What would you say is your relationship right now to the Denver Nuggets organization, to the Denver Nuggets fan base, and, and really to the city at Denver at large? And maybe what, you know, what, if, it's, if it's not what you would like, what would you like it to be? I don't think I have any relationship with the Denver Nuggets other than I run into some of their coaches and, and Ryan Bowen and a couple guys on their staff yeah. have been with me. Uh, you know, my revenge is over. I'm, I was angry. I was let go. Uh, I have not spoken to Josh Kroenke since then. Uh, I would like to speak to Josh Kroenke. If it happened, if it happens, I'd love the opportunity. Um, uh, I'm now a Denver Nugget fan. I'm over it. I'm, I, uh, I want them to succeed. I want them to win. And I'm, I'm going to act like a fan a little bit. I might be too opinionated. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was told I was too opinionated for about 20 years of coaching in the NBA. Yeah. Well, George, thank you so much for taking this time and, and talking with me. I found the conversation to be really fascinating. I know my, my fan base and the Denver Nuggets fan base will really enjoy this one. And, um, and just thank you. Thank you for taking this time. Adam, thank you for being a, a good MC. You did a great job. I, I appreciate that very much. You guys can check out all of his podcasts along with uh, his fantastic host, Brett Goldberg, Truth and Basketball. It's on all your platforms. Really good episodes, including some about Carmelo Anthony, Kobe Bryant, many, many other stories. I believe one coming out about the 1994 playoffs, which is a, a, a great memory for Denver Nuggets fans. Yeah, was not a great memory for George Carl. (laughs) Well, I'll be looking forward to that one. Uh, Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you all next time. Wrap up here. I want to tell you about Green Mountain Dental Group in Lakewood, Colorado. They're the best family-owned dentist in the metro area. They're extreme Colorado sports fans just like us. You want to schedule your cleaning. You know the drill. You're cleaning x-ray and exam right now, and you'll receive a free Sonicare toothbrush. 
Tweet at us when you go there. Let us know that you're supporting somebody inside the DNVR family. They're longtime DNVR subscribers and partners, and they just love the show. They love Denver sports. They're only 15 minutes from downtown, so don't forget to schedule your cleaning x-ray and exam today and get a free Sonicare toothbrush.